0: Hey everyone, Trace here. It's been a while, but welcome back to Seeker Plus. I cannot tell you how happy I am to be back. If you're new to the show, welcome. If you're old to the show, welcome back. Seeker Plus takes a big topic, and we break it down into chunks so that we all understand it a bit better. And today we're going to break down the science of meatless meat. Who came up with this idea? What exactly is it? If meat is truly meatless, could it be vegetarian? We have a special guest coming for that one. And if we can just grow it in a lab, Wouldn't eating human be okay? I know, it's pretty crazy. We even get into whether we evolved to eat meat and whether we could evolve to not eat it, too. It's gonna be really fun. Over the next 45 minutes or so, we're gonna get all up into the biology and history, ethics, and deliciousness of meat. If you haven't subscribed, please do that. And if you're listening to this podcast, thank you. If you haven't watched our show Seeker, go check it out on YouTube. You can find it anywhere YouTube is found, which I think at this point is everywhere. You can even find the series there in case you're wondering what my face looks like. Anyway, meat. This is gonna be awesome, so let's kick into it. You know what meat means kind of inherently in your head, right? When you think meat, you have a picture that appears. But is that what meat really is? Etymology time, baby. (laughs) I miss this show. Meat uh, has been eaten forever since antiquity. Uh, Humans, as long as there's been a human memory, we've eaten meat. And you think of meat likely as the flesh of an animal that is used for food. Merriam-Webster, the dictionary, says uh, that it's the flesh of an animal. The American Meat Science Association says that meat is the edible tissues from an animal consumed as food. So meat would not be something we don't consume as food, according to the AMSA. But I find that really interesting because if you look into history and the etymology of the word meat, until the 14th century, the words meat and food were the same thing. If you were, you know, out at a restaurant, if that existed in the 14th century, and you were like, hi, I would like some food, what you were saying out loud is, hello, I would like some meat, please. You were very polite in the 14th century. You didn't have that much else, okay? Politeness is all we had. Just our manners. Anyway, food is Germanic. It comes from the verb to feed or fodgen. I'm not going to pronounce that properly. But uh, Bon Appetit, a magazine, says that meat might share a root with words like bread, shepherd, foster, and pasture. Because if you think about it, whatever we were eating, we were likely harvesting or going out and gathering and hunting for. We've been doing that for thousands of years. So to have a word that was related made sense. But it does cause a little bit of confusion as we start to layer more and more rules on top of our new society. For example, in the Bible, Genesis 1.30, God's all like, I have given every green herb for meat and it was so. So does that mean he gave all the green herbs for food? because meat and food meant the same thing? Maybe. In other words, hey, Adam and Eve, eat these veggies, they're good for you. That's what I have given you to eat. I mean, it makes sense because until they ate the fruit, Adam and Eve didn't know death, which means they couldn't exactly slaughter an animal and eat it. That wouldn't really work with not knowing death. I mean, I'm not a scholar in the biblical sense. Uh, I'm just saying, It's interesting, right? If you know that meat and food are the same thing, you can start to question a lot of different things that you read, especially throughout history. But let's move on from that for a minute. Etymology over. Eventually, we decided that something was food and something else was meat. So why don't we work backwards and say what we know meat is, right? What no one will argue that meat isn't. This is very confusing. (laughs) Meat is definitely stuff like beef or chicken or pork. Right? I think we can all agree. Goat's meat is also meat. Uh, a number of other things. There's, there's lots. Um, beef is a red meat, it comes from cows. Chicken is a white meat, it comes from chickens. Pork is a red meat. I know that's confusing, because there was that commercial thing when we were kids. All like, hey, it's the other white meat. It's not. It's a red meat. They're all muscle tissues. Uh, but muscles aren't technically meat. We go back to the American Meat Science Association, and what they have said is that biochemical reactions that occur at the time of death and afterward turn muscles into meat. This is really fascinating stuff. See, blood isn't pumping through these muscles anymore at the time of death. So uh, a salt called lactate builds up. It's milk-related, but again, it's a salt. And that accumulation of lactate decreases the pH of the muscle tissue. Over time, that is associated with the conversion of muscle into meat. Once the pH is altered, the muscle tissues can store a different amount of water. That amount of water affects the eating experience of the meat once you've cooked it, right? So that muscle tissue has become meat, and it has a different water storage experience. This is, again, according to the American Meat Science Association. And that's why muscles aren't technically just meat on their own. And if that wasn't confusing enough for you, because I hope you're coming with me on this, there are two different types of muscles that can become meat. There's red and white meat. Even though pork isn't white meat, white meat does exist. Chicken is white meat, for example. And in the dictionary, they say any meat that is dark colored before cooking, as beef, lamb, venison, or mutton, is considered red meat. The USDA or the US Department of Agriculture says that red meat contains more myoglobin, a protein in muscles that helps us store oxygen. And the Rousse Gastronomique from 1938, this old French cookbook, says that culinary definition of red meat is that it comes from mammals. That's the one that I tend to latch onto. I think it's the one that makes the most sense for me in my brain, that if it comes from a mammal, it is red meat. However, white meat also has its own definitions. For example, sort of in contrast to red meat, has less myoglobin in the muscles. It's, a, again, a protein that helps you store oxygen. Uh, and we had to decide somewhere where white and red had a line. And for me, again, mammals seems to make the most sense. Um, according to the San Francisco Exploratorium, who has a whole science of cooking website, uh, the white meat versus red meat discussion relates to how much activity the animals themselves do. Chickens, for example, don't really fly that much. They mostly just kind of walk around. And that makes their meat have a less myoglobin, because it doesn't need as much oxygen as quickly to, to fly, and thus it's white. Cows, on the other hand, they also stand around, but they have a lot of different muscles, uh, and thus they need more myoglobin for some reason. But is the meat different is the question, right? That's the thing I kept coming back to while I was doing this research. It, is red and white meat, are they that different? And they sort of are. Fast twitch muscles and slow twitch muscles exist in humans. We have them, and animals also have them. Fast twitch muscles are for like short-term activity, like flying for a few seconds if you're a chicken, or running really fast, uh, like a sprint. Slow twitch muscles are for longer term activity, like swimming or for running a more distance kind of situation. So inside of animals, they also have fast and slow twitch muscles. And different animals with different evolutions and different purposes have different ratios of those muscles. The fast twitch muscle is a white meat, and the slow twitch muscle is a red meat. So. That is one way we can define two different types. Really interesting. However, after all of this, if meat is sort of just another word for food and it's a specific type of food and now we've said, okay, it tends to be from mammals and animals that are specifically mammals and also some other things like birds and stuff, you know, it, it gets very confusing to kind of draw a box around what this is. I think we can all agree that meat is from animals, Right? got the red meat, got the white meat, but they're both animals. So does that mean that all animals are meat? Not necessarily, because animals are the kingdom of life animalia. That includes pigs and cows and chickens and goats and sheep and deer and buffalo, but also includes fish, which I think we can all agree now that fish is not meat. I once went to the Kingsford Invitational barbecue competition. I asked one of the best barbecuers in the world why they don't barbecue fish. And she looks at me and goes, fish ain't meat. True story. Fish ain't meat, apparently. Even though it's got slow twitch muscles, it's got very low myoglobin, we don't call it meat. On top of that... There are these other definitions that make things more confusing. To kind of touch back on religion again, you can't really avoid talking about meat without talking about kind of morality and religion and all of the other layers that we've put on top of meat, in part because we're killing an animal to eat it, and in part because there are economic benefits and drawbacks to having these types of products. Catholics, for example, don't eat meat on Friday. But it's not because the pope made a deal with fishmongers which is the common history. Uh, there's a, a really interesting uh, article all about this, and it's, it's because Jesus died on a Friday, to sacrifice an animal would be disrespectful to his sacrifice in that he died. Um, but, and again, not a biblical scholar, talk about it in the comments. Uh, We know that Catholics don't eat meat during Lent or on Friday, and meat is defined by that as chicken, cow, sheep, or pig, but not fish. You can eat fish on Friday, even though fish is a slow-twitch muscle with low myoglobin, so it would not be considered white meat. It's an animal, et cetera, et cetera. And most people know what a fish is, right? You picture it kind of swimming in a river or an ocean or whatever. But in the 17th century, there was more of a discussion about what is a fish? What is it? Again, you picked your one, but according to the church, beaver is a fish. That's right. Why? Well, because in the 17th century, Native Americans and Canadians here in the New World loved to eat beaver. There were millions of them all over the New World, and they had a lot of value for their furs and for their meat. Uh, even though technically it's fish. Uh, So they would hunt and eat those beaver, and they were very concerned that during Lent they wouldn't be able to do that. It was one of their favorite meals. So the church said, "Okay, well, they swim a lot. They're really good swimmers. They spend a lot of time in the water. They are now fish. Um, The Bishop of Quebec asked this to happen, and the church uh, acquiesced. So now you can eat beaver during Lent, which is weird, even though beaver definitely a mammal, kind of strange. And it's not just beaver. For example, turtles ain't meat. That's considered a fish. Alligator ain't meat. Considered a fish. Now, some of these things make sense in the little rules that we've drawn for ourselves because alligators aren't mammals. So okay, could maybe not be meat. I don't know. This is, again, just for discussion. What do you guys think? Uh, This is a science show. So to wrap it up, I want to bring it back to science. We can't really listen to what the church said in the 17th century, what the Bible said whenever it was put together. Uh, We can't even listen to our guts on this one. No pun intended. Instead, let's go back to the American Meat Science Association. And I mean, they have meat in the name, so one would hope that they would know what meat is. And according to them, meat is defined to be skeletal muscle and its associated tissues derived from mammalian avian, reptilian, amphibian, and aquatic species commonly harvested for human consumption. So animals that we eat, (laughs) which kind of brings us full circle, right? Is that the best definition? Talk amongst yourselves. I have no idea. But what meat is, like what it really is, is sort of whatever we say it is. If tomorrow we decided that meat grown in a lab was just as meaty as meat grown on a cow, That's our decision. We can make that decision as a group, as a group of humans. Or if something that is a taste of meat, just tastes like meat, we could call that meat just as easily, even if it's made of plants. Is this idea us returning to history, where meat and food are the same thing? Or is this the future of meat, is the question that I'm posing to you. What do you think? This is senior food editor at Thrillist, Kushbu Shah. Hi. Yay. We're going to talk a lot about that over the next 15 or so minutes. Kushbu, you're writing a thing about how meat could be vegetarian, like lab-grown meat?
1: Yeah. So when I first heard about lab-grown meat, which was probably about f- four or five years at this point, um, I grew up in a completely vegetarian family, actually. So my first instinct was like, oh, is this something that like we could eat? Uh, and so I wanted to set about, you know, asking various people about that, but there wasn't enough familiarity. So now you know, recently, um, we asked like PETA, we asked scientists, I asked a religious expert, like from different points of views, like whether they think lab grown meat could be vegetarian and the answers were so across the board.
0: So. A little bit about lab-grown meat, for those who don't know. It was first created in 2013. It took about three months to grow it, and Mm. it was invented by a Dutch scientist named Mark Post. Do you know much about, like, that creation story?
1: I know it took a lot of, like... Work to figure out how to do it. So, I think the way they did it was they were harvesting cells from the muscle of a cow, mm-hmm. which they said is a painless process for the cow, but how do you actually know? I yeah, don't know. Yeah, it's a yeah. gray area. Um, they cultured the cells and then they fed them so that the cells replicated, replicated, replicated. And then you had, you know, basically a whole like petri dish of. Cow cells, But here's the thing. It's missing fat. It's missing the other things that kind of go into a burger. So he mixed it with egg. Mm. And I think one other binder, I forget the name of it, to create sort of the first, you know, meatless patty, the meatless hmm. burger. Though a lot of people referred to it as sort of like a a dry tasting like animal puck, which I don't think is the ideal burger type. Yeah, if you read the like
0: description of people who are eating it, they they didn't really give like rave reviews, but they said it tasted meaty.
1: Yeah, they said it tasted meaty. I mean, considering that it was over three hundred thousand dollars to create one little, you know, puck, that's a little bit expensive for for the taste. But I mean, it's interesting that it was like a proof of concept that it actually worked, it actually happened.
0: I read that uh, according to Big Think, um, they've gotten the price down to about $11.36 per puck, I guess you <laughs> could say, right? Um, but you know, there are mm, benefits tucks. to it, aside from the vegetarian thing, like just to kind of sidebar for a second, it conserves water and energy. Mm-hmm. It's better for the environment in that respect. It reduces greenhouse gas emissions, because you're not raising all of these livestock only to then take them and slaughter them and to make them into...
1: Yeah, I think livestock is responsible for like 15% of man-made greenhouse gas emissions, which yeah. is, oh, that's a giant chunk. It's a lot. It's a
0: lot. So when you were talking to all these people about the Kind of ethical feelings of lab-grown meat, and if any of you have your own opinions on that, please you know let us know in the comments. But PETA said when they tried lab-grown meat for the first time, or when people tried it, that they called it a success, and they said it was a big deal, and um, you know. Who determines the ethics of this?
1: I, you, that's actually really interesting because PETA is an organization that is so pro-vegan, not even vegetarian. And mm-hmm. I, I feel for like a lot of people that I talk to, some lifelong vegetarians, some scientists and stuff, they, some chefs, they were like, okay, we can see how this could maybe be vegetarian because you're just, you're not killing the animal, you're just harvesting like cells from it and then going through that process. But it's interesting that PETA has actually funded a lot of this research for mm-hmm. lab-grown meat, and they made this conscious decision to sort of blur the lines a little bit and actually you know pursue something that might be considered vegetarian and not vegan because to them stopping the slaughter of animals was just that important and they realized that you know they could maybe not stop the world from eating meat but if they could give them an alternative source that doesn't harm animals like that was closer to their cause. Uh, than, you know, not supporting it at all. So PETA is actually really instrumental in funding a lot of this lab-grown research.
0: I think it's super interesting to think of lab-grown meat almost not as meat, even though it comes from it. it. It seems like we're putting it in this new gray area.
1: Yeah, it's, I mean, it is sort of missing a lot of the things that meat has. Like it is, it's one part of the meat that you usually see. You know, mm-hmm. like it's missing the fat, it's missing these like muscle striations, it's missing the blood, it's missing all these other things that contribute to the flavor of meat. So if all of those things are not there, is it really meat at the mm-hmm. end of the day? Like, cause they all have to be added back in, sort of after.
0: Yeah, yeah, they do. So I guess to kind of reask the question, like what do, what do you think in terms of like the ethics of mm-hmm. something like a lab-grown burger? What what have you kind of discovered or revealed by your conversations?
1: Yeah, so I think right now where we're at with lab-grown meat technology, we're pretty far from it You know, meeting the ethical arguments that people want it to meet. At least when it comes to lab-grown beef, like the most successful way that people have found so far is when you culture cells, you need to feed cells, something for it to grow, right? right? the most common way right now is using a serum from like fetal bovine. So from you have to kill baby fetus cows um, to get this serum. So yeah. is that still really ethical at the end of the day? I don't know. I don't think so. You know, and that maybe isn't so vegetarian friendly. Right. When you do still have to slaughter an animal to get there. But if we can get around this you know, then I think maybe it does meet this ethical requirement of a lot of people who are vegetarian for those reasons, you know, for environmental reasons, for the they don't want to harm or kill animals. You know, if there's no actual physical harm being done to these animals, then sure, I don't see why it wouldn't be an option for people who agree with that.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I feel like, the ethics for me are just all mixed up in all sorts of other things especially doing the research for these episodes about like what meat really is and isn't a lot of it is as i've said already what we say it is. Mm -hmm. And since it has such a cultural connection to so many different groups around the world and such a religious-like connection, you can't disconnect those things from what meat is, right? And where that meat comes from. So let's say we lab grew meat from a chicken Mm -hmm. versus a pig versus a cow. Could different cultures eat different ones and feel differently about them? Of course they can. And they will. Even if we spend all this time and money to grow it, there's still going to be these...
1: Like cultural touchstone. Just because technically you can eat something doesn't mean that people are necessarily gonna be comfortable with it. Like Absolutely. I talked to someone who is a Hindu scholar and mm-hmm. obviously in Hinduism, you know, cows at least in modern Hinduism, cows are, you know, considered relatively sacred. And I think even just cutting into the animal and harvesting its cells is and just eating something that is from a cow's body, I think is just still too much for people to wrap their brains around. Mm-hmm. I mean, my mom is incredibly vegetarian; has always been for religious reasons, for cultural reasons. And I distinctly remember growing up, like we bought some of those, you know, fake soy corn dogs, and like she could not bite into it just because it was still, just it was like a too close, yeah. yeah, it's too close. And she's like, I, I just don't want to eat dead animals or anything that represents that, you know, or anything that's remotely close to it. It has that texture. I think texture is going to be sort of one of the biggest things and one of the biggest hurdles that lab-grown meat is going to face.
0: If you have this texture in your mouth and it doesn't, it tastes right, but it feels wrong. Yeah. It almost reminds me of when you are you have like VR goggles on <laughs> yeah. and you're you're looking around but your ears aren't moving the same way they're supposed to and you get sick it feels mm-hmm. that same way you get that like kind of internal sense of something is wrong and I don't know what's going on if we make this the future of meat mm-hmm. which is what people are talking about they're gonna have to solve a lot of these issues to get people to want to consume it
1: totally I mean there's there's been some success with lab-grown chicken but like one of the biggest complaints with that is that it has the flavor is of chicken but the texture is like very spongy it's wrong Ooh. like, like spongy, spongy chicken? i don't want to think of spongy chicken <laughs> Ugh. like no matter how much sauce or how much you deep fry it like <laughs> it still just like won't won't save that i don't know about that i feel like if i deep fried it it'd it <laughs> <that'd>
0: be <good. laughs>
1: here's the thing with lab grown meat is that there's not there hasn't been enough of it created for us to fully study it too. Like, we don't know what the total environmental impacts of it will be. We hope that it'll solve pollution problems. We hope that it'll solve, like, land use problems. But We haven't, there's no system or process that has been mastered yet that we know is 100% going to work and 100% going to bring us to the point where lab-grown meat is going to be totally widespread. And there's studies that are conflicting, you know, Mm -hmm. about this. Like, some say that lab-grown meat is pretty much equivalent to the greenhouse gas emissions of the European pork industry, um, which is lower than the United States, but that's still still emissions, emissions, right? I don't think we will ever, as, like, human beings, stop eating regular meat. I think it'll just become more and more of a precious commodity.
0: Animals will still be around. We'll still use them for things in the same way that now we have like super expensive cuts of beef Mm -hmm. that, you know, like Kobe beef and stuff that people do this very special rituals with. Yes. Right now, we don't really have that feeling in a lot of, especially in the West, about how we think of our meat. It's like so disconnected from the food chain itself that it's it's just a commodity that we buy for 12 cents or whatever. Um, and and it, maybe it shouldn't be 12 cents. You know, Maybe it should be more expensive, and that's something that maybe lab-grown meat might mm-hmm. bring in, like, oh, well, we can make this for 12 cents, but we probably shouldn't be growing cows for 12 cents, like yeah. growing li- livestock.
1: Exactly, and we forget that, The livestock industry is also connected to so many other peripheral industries. Like what about the fashion industry? They rely on leather. They rely on that. I mean, there is lab grown leather that's sort of happening, which is kind of interesting and weird too, um, which I think probably has less issues than lab grown meat because you don't really need flavor. You just need the right texture. Um, but you know, animals are also used in pet food. They're used in the cosmetics industry. Like they're used in so many other applications like glue, you Mm -hmm. know, so if we stop Slaughtering those animals completely. What does it mean for all these other industries that are also associated with it? We That's can't. a really great point. Forget about those either. Yeah,
0: I mean, how am I going to eat Jello? <laughs> yeah. I hate Jello. I don't really
1: like Jello. I think we'd all maybe be better with less
0: <laughs> less Jello around. Why is it so difficult for us to move people toward vegetarianism? Is I guess mm-hmm. a question that I keep asking myself. Not that. I'm not a vegetarian. I have mm. tried being a vegetarian. I liked it. I enjoyed it. I felt nice like about myself and what I was eating. But I was also still like worried about not eating the right things or missing things in my diet or you know stuff like that., yeah. so why is it that it's so hard to get people to be vegetarian, do you think?
1: Well, first of all, I don't think people like being told that they can't eat something. Mm. Like once you start putting restrictions on something, because there's even a lot of vegetarians who have like opa poo on like veganism because they're like they don't like the idea that they can't eat you know, the certain set of foods, even though they're so, they're just one step away, you know? Right. Um, So I don't think people like restriction, but I also think it's a culture thing. You know, when you look at cultures outside of the West, especially, especially in the East, like it's really easy to be vegetarian because everyone around you is vegetarian. All your meals are set up to be super satisfying. Like it's a way of eating that you understand. It's not taught to you that you need meat, potatoes, and a vegetable on your dinner plate. Like, There is stuff set up in society to make it very easy to be vegetarian. Like, Mm -hmm. it's a little bit harder here. You might go to a restaurant if you're vegetarian. Then you're stuck with, you know, a plate of, like, sides. And, like, that's all you get. Like, people don't know how to necessarily cook it. But, you know, you go to India and, like.
0: Potentially over time, maybe, that meat, the way we think of it now, could change if it's cultural. It just takes lots of time and maybe more options that people would have. Like, we're still living with that post-war idea that we can put meat on everybody's plate mm-hmm. every meal which we couldn't even have said at the turn of the previous century right <laughs> yeah it's like right before world war ii we weren't saying like meat on everybody's plate that's the best exactly and so it's really just the last 60 70 years we've gotten here
1: and i think that's a lot is tied in with marketing as well like this idea, especially you know, in the U.S. and in, the, in Europe, of like meat is associated with manliness and like mm. strength mm-hmm. and like power over animals, and so, and vegetarianism sort of has this idea of being a little bit meeker. You know, mm. it's not necessarily the, the truth or the case.
0: It's a little more like a masculine-feminine battle.
1: Almost. Exactly. Like salads are feminine and meat is masculine. This whole, right? You know, has yeah. been perpetrated for for decades at this point. But and I think that's sort of hard to break through.
0: It is. Yeah. I wanted to like kind of end on something that's just crazy. Okay, <laughs> let's let's just run with me on this, everybody. Okay, so if meat that is grown in a lab is more ethical, mm-hmm. and part of the ethics problem with like slaughtering animals is we're killing animals, we're harming them. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I can take cells from, let's say. A fictional animal for the moment, a hypothetical animal that is willing to give the cells and can provide consent somehow. Mm -hmm. Would those cells then have come from an ethical source and then I could grow them and create an ethical piece of
1: meat? If you could grow them ethically.
0: If I could grow them ethically as well. Yeah. and. I was thinking about this while I was putting together this episode, and there's really just one animal that can do that, and that would be human. (laughs) So, if I could give my cells and consent to that, and then we could grow them ethically, would that not be the most ethical piece of meat that one could consume? Thoughts?
1: I, you know.
0: I'm not saying I would eat it.
1: (laughs) I'm not saying that. I'm just saying. I think ethics wise, it might. Be the most. I mean, you're consenting.
0: I guess, yeah. Right.
1: So a trace burger would be ethical. I don't. Sorry, not to diss you. I'm sure it's it would know, be, delicious, be delicious, but it could also so be tasty. Terrible. I mean, it's the whole thing of wrapping your. You know how vegetarians can't wrap their brains around eating things that are the texture of meat. Mm-hmm. I don't think most humans can wrap their brains around eating something that's like texture of, human. of another human.
0: Especially this one.
1: <laughs> Especially that <laughs> one. I mean, though, deep fry it, enough cheese. You know what? Again,
0: back to the deep frying. We might
1: Let's we might get there. It. You know, a little aioli. Like.
0: Technically, it wouldn't be illegal. I looked that up. In, oh. in the U.S., there are no laws against cannibalism. They did say that um, most, if not all states, have made it impossible to obtain human meat legally. But to consume it is not technically illegal if you could obtain it in a way like... Growing in a cell, yeah. Thing. So this is according to Cornell Law School. So uh, I think it's pretty interesting. <laughs> I think the idea here is a better solution than eating human, yeah. <laughs> which just might be to minimize meat in your diet.
1: In doing all the research for this, that's the conclusion I keep coming back to. Like. The idea of lab-grown meat is that we just don't want to cut down our consumption at all. Like, apparently Americans eat something like 7,000 full animals in their lifetime, which is (laughs) low-key insane. That's a full farm. That's a lot of animals. That's a lot of animals. And it's an average. So some people are eating way more than that. To get around that problem, we want to do this, like, crazy, expensive solution, like when th- there's another solution in front of us, like maybe let's just eat a little bit less of it mm-hmm. and like let's eat like higher quality sources of it. Let's eat like 6,000 animals Yeah, on just Like, like just 6,000. Know, even even
0: 6,500. Like, yeah. You're eating like a little less meat. That's a big deal. Yeah. I, I think you can really it make a, a big impact. difference. And it doesn't Yes, there are economic factors to eating less meat, but it depends on all these other factors too, as you were saying, that like the livestock industry and the farming industry has so many different moving parts Mm -hmm. and so much changes so often that if you eat a little less meat, you shouldn't feel bad for the livestock industry (laughs) and you're going to feel better for other industries. It's similar to like green energy. I feel like, yes, we could keep burning coal because it's easy, Right. or we could try, creating a whole new system that is friendlier to us and to the earth.
1: Mm -hmm. Definitely. And here's the thing. It's getting a lot easier to have one less meat meal a week. You know, there's a lot of chefs that are working to do things in that space. A lot of them are, you know, working really creatively with turning uh, plant-based, like vegetables, Mm. and treating them and cooking them like you would cook meat. So the result is something that's actually... Mimics a lot of those flavors, a lot of those textures, but it just happens to be made from like a fruit or vegetable. We actually have a piece going up on Thrillist soon about this guy in New York City who is turning full fresh cantaloupes into something that like sears like a duck breast, can be eaten like a burger, like he like uses a smoker and like all these different treatments to like turn fresh fruit into something that looks like a burger. Yeah, you know?
0: And that kind of brings me back to where we were at the end of the last episode which is <laughs> meat, it could potentially be what we say it is, whether it's lab grown, whether it's plant based, whether it's simply like a mixture of all of these different strategies. Meat in the future could be very different. Uh, well, thanks so much for coming on and talking to us about lab grown meat. Mm-hmm. If people want to find you, can they find you on Twitter or where, where should oh, people yeah. look you up?
1: Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Kushan OJ. It's K-H-U-S-H-A-N-D-O-J. Same on Instagram. It's a lot of maybe cantaloupe burgers, and fossil burgers on on that feed, yeah.
0: Cool, and definitely go to Thrillist.com and check out the article about whether lab-grown meat can be vegetarian. For some people, meat is murder. For some people, bacon is literally the best thing in the world. Uh, Steak and potatoes might be the only thing that a 1950s man ate on TV, Uh, but meat is not the only thing out there. Meat is a very important part of a diet, especially a diet high in calories and proteins. However, it's not always been that way. Okay? Come with me on this. Also, I'm sort of over bacon, but that's a sidebar. You can comment all you want about that. At some point, we did not eat meat. We just didn't do it. Not just modern humans. We've always pretty much eaten meat, at least in some part. But I'm talking throughout history. There were points where we just didn't eat meat, ancient humans and so on. We're going to talk all about it. It's not entirely known when we started meat eating. uh, But if you study our evolutionary cousins, chimps and gorillas, you start to see that we had some common ancestor where we must have split from them. Because chimps, they eat meat. Gorillas, they are completely vegetarian. So at some point a shared ancestor with all of us, the chimps and us decided meat, the gorillas and a number of other primates and apes decided vegetarian. Why did our common ancestor choose potatoes over steak is a pretty important question. So. Most of our human ancestors, if you look back like, I mean ancient, ancient, millions of years ago, most of our cousins and our ancestors are vegetarian. And it has a lot to do with niches and with competition in the wild. There are lots of predators, there's lots of prey, and you have to go out and compete. And not eating meat opens up a lot more options for where to get your nutritious intake. More than 15 million years ago, came about the first primate ever, at least that we know of. And it was called Purgatorius. The Atlantic has a great piece all about the history of meat eating through our lineage. Uh, You should definitely check it out. There's a link in the description. Purgatorius was a vegan. It was actually a set of different animals. So we've got small monkeys, larger apes, more gorilla-sized. And then six million years ago, that group evolved into a new group, Cilanthropus tachdensis. I'm not very good at these Latin names, and that's the first hominin ever. That's what humans are, hominins. And Celanthropus walked upright and ate plants and seeds and nuts. Then three to four million years ago, Australopithecus came on the scene, still didn't eat a lot of meat, mostly vegetarian. Some meat, some fruit, some leaves. And we know all this by the size and shape of the guts that we find, not the soft tissues, but just the shapes of the abdominal cavities and the way that the bones all fit together. We can determine what the guts of these animals looked like. Somewhere around two and a half million years ago, though, was a shift. All these nuts and seeds that we've been eating since Salanthropus, they're high in fat, and they're low in fiber. As we eat more nuts and more seeds, we need to be able to break down these high-fat, low-fiber foods. There's a lot of calories in seeds and nuts, and that means we need a longer small intestine to do that. A longer small intestine is also good for another type of dietary Function, eating meat. So over time, and we're talking tens of thousands of years, generations and generations, thousands of generations, over this incremental, slow evolutionary process, our intestine gets longer, we're eating more of these varied diets from leaves to nuts and meats and all sorts of different things, and eventually we get to meat eating. When we get to the early homo groups, you know, we're homo sapien, for example, we started to go all in on the omnivorous diet and get more meat. We started grabbing meat when it was possible. And eventually, we evolved to be more meat-eaty. The reason we did that is because meat is a very calorie-dense, very protein-dense, Type of food. Some other animal has taken all the effort of eating all these plants and nuts and seeds and fruits and kind of combined them together into this little protein bar, <laughs> which we call a steak, right? <laughs> but the thing is, That doesn't necessarily make it the best type of food all the time. Without meat, we would have never evolved to be these amazing world-conquering species that we have become to be. And you can see where this comes about in our history in a study in Nature from 2016 titled, The Impact of Meat and Lower Paleolithic Food Processing Techniques on Chewing in Humans. They looked at chewing because that's a good indication of what a species eats. And it turns out, paleolithic humans ate meat. And that's why we don't have a strong bite force. Our gut is a little smaller. We have a longer small intestinal space. Our facial muscles are not as pronounced because we're not grinding lots of different plant matter down and our brain can get bigger because we have that calorie dense steak bar that we can eat really a steak, we're eating all sorts of stuff, but you get the point. Meat has all of these calories in one place, and if you can harvest them, they found if you could replace one third of the diet of ancient humans, they would chew less and they get more energy. And this has nothing to do with cooking, which is a whole separate thing. This is just the meat eating itself. 2.6 million years ago until about 10,000 years ago, that's considered the Paleolithic era, and this is when they're studying. And it turns out during that time, our jaws got smaller, our brains got bigger, our guts got smaller, and we were able to take in more and more of this meat product. Once you can eat more calorically dense foods, you can eat fewer times during the day. It actually frees up time in your schedule to do other things. Think about pandas, think about uh, cows, think about other obligate vegetarian animals. They're eating A lot. They're eating most of their day. They're chewing and chewing and chewing and chewing and chewing and chewing because they have to grind all that plant matter down. They have to have a long gut so they can digest all of that plant matter. With us, our gut got smaller so we could eat this meat product, and it's great. And because it's so calorically dense, it lets us eat fewer times during the day. We can build things. We can think about things. We can explore the world around us. We don't have this tie to a tree or to a specific plane where we have to stay. And on top of that, it got incrementally better over the generations. As we got better at eating meat, we got better at doing other things other than just sitting around and eating all the time. And now we've sort of come full circle, because I think last vacation I literally just ate all the time. And it was amazing. But I also wasn't running from predators most, most of the time. The funny thing is, all of this eating kind of evolved so quickly in our gut that we didn't really catch up in our face. Peter Lucas, the author of Dental Functional Morphology, I found while I was looking through all this meat research that mammal jaws, like if you think of a mammal out in the world, they look like a classic comic book, right? Uh, Think of a gorilla. Uh, They're square. It looks like a comic book hero. But the human jaw is more rounded. It's actually really bad for what we use it for. And he said, quote, it's really the only body part that regularly needs attention and surgery. I found really interesting. And part of that is because of what we eat and how we eat it. Thanks, evolution. That said, though, we shouldn't stop eating meat altogether. We do need to eat meat. Even vegans need something from meat called vitamin B12. It only comes from meat, eggs, and dairy. It's a meat Product or a animal byproduct, no matter what. Vegans who don't want to damage an animal or have moral quandaries about it, they still need B12 and they get it through a bacterial byproduct that is then put into a supplement or fortified into vegan foods. But it still comes from bacteria or from meats the only place where B12 can come from. A very low B12 intake can cause anemia and nervous system damage. That's how much our bodies rely on meat product or animal product, that if we don't eat it, our nervous system doesn't function particularly well, and we get anemia. That's how much we've evolved to eat this product. Today, we do have some problems with meat eating. I'm not here to say meat is the best, everyone should eat meat. I don't think that that is true. I think vegetarianism and veganism has just as much of a place in society as omnivores, as meat eaters, as you know, carnivorous people who believe that that's all that they need to sustain themselves. I'm not here to judge. That's not my job. Culturally, vegetarianism and veganism is very important for a lot of cultures throughout the world, and you might not know a lot about some of the arguments for and against that. I'm not going to get into a lot of them here, but I do think one that gets a little bit less play is the resources and economics argument to be more vegetarian. Not 100% necessarily, but more. Think about it this way. How many burgers do you get from one cow? Just one. There's not an exact answer to this, but there are a number of different studies that I could put together based on uh, the research that i have done. According to Oklahoma State and San Diego State Universities, breaking down a cow into those terms by pound means you get about 40% of a cow's weight to go into meat. And that's meat that we eat, including every kind of the meat, ribs, T-bone steaks, all the fancy cuts, all of that stuff. So you might get 185 pounds or about 84 kilograms of lean trim from one 1,200 or 1,000 pound cow. That's not a lot. That's what becomes then ground beef. That's 740 Quarter pounders con queso or royales with cheese, if you will, from a single cow. 740, which also sounds like a lot of quarter pounders, but that's about 10 seconds of McDonald's burger sales. 10 seconds for a cow. Every 10 seconds, McDonald's is churning through one cow. And that's just McDonald's. That's not your local restaurant. That's not the beef that you buy at the store. According to numbers from Business Insider, by the way, but still, and sidebar, Each of those burgers requires about 460 gallons of water to produce, or about 1,750 liters, according to the U.S. Geological Survey, and that is a lot of water. Eventually, producing animals at this rate is going to be unsustainable. How much meat is there in the world? There's a lot. There's basically more than we would ever need. It's so cheap that you can get it for less than a dollar, right? However that doesn't necessarily mean it's sustainable forever. There won't be enough land or water in the world to feed everyone who wants a hamburger eventually. I didn't do the math, and even though many people have talked about it, the numbers vary, but let's just say eventually, maybe not in my lifetime, but in potentially some of our collective lifetimes, we will run out of this resource. And there are other places we could get meat, just to take that branch for a minute, horses, found in mongolia bulgaria switzerland belgium and france you can eat horse meat the american butcher shops actually sold horse meat until world war ii today that doesn't really happen that much we also eat things like kangaroo and goat and pigeon and camel uh, all sorts of other types of meat we're not even going to get into fish and in the ocean and the overfishing of that's a whole separate conversation and also if you remember from episode one fish ain't meat There are other things that we don't eat, mostly for cultural reasons like dogs and cats. Dog meat was actually legal in 44 states even until several years ago. The current numbers I don't have, but 44 states is a lot of states. And generally you could, if you wanted, kill and eat a dog as long as you're not doing it cruelly because animal cruelty laws do apply even though if you do it quickly and cleanly in a slaughterhouse situation, you potentially could do that. But there are a few states with laws against eating something like dogs and cats. Mostly, you just can't trade in animal carcasses and animals that we seem to care about. But it's mainly cultural. And a lot of the laws aren't written to be like, specifically, these animals you cannot eat. It's more you can't trade in animal carcasses of these types, or you can't kill animals cruelly in these ways. It's fascinating, um, but it is another source of meat. And even though culturally we don't like eating dog, that doesn't mean the dog meat is bad. It just means we don't like it, right? Oh, by the way, on the show, our theory sort of is that we don't seem to eat things that enrich our life or make our life better or animals that seem to work for us, which is why pigs, even though they're very intelligent, we do eat. And dogs, which are also very intelligent, we don't because they enrich our lives, whereas pigs may or may not, even though some people do keep them as pets. It gets very confusing. In the end, there are also other sources of proteins to take another track from uh, meat and the future of it, and that is insects. We could eat. Insects, just as easily. You can mix insect proteins into flours and make protein-rich cookies and muffins and all sorts of other carbs that we really love. Crickets are twice as efficient for the amount of protein to produce, and they actually taste okay. I've eaten them many times. They sort of taste nutty. I've eaten ants and all sorts of other insects, and they're very good for you. And again, most of our hang-ups come from the cultural experience, not the actual meat or its viability as a product, which I find fascinating. In the future, we're going to run out of space. We're going to run out of a place to grow meat. And our alternative might be what we were talking about in the last episode of Seeker Plus, and that is lab-grown meat, right? I'd love to try lab-grown meat. I read a statistic that lab-grown meat used to cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. Now it's down into the tens of dollars per pound, which is very affordable, still not beef affordable, but very. And we really just have to decide that that meat is viable. Right now, we're putting a lot of effort into growing cows and growing pigs for consumption, but what if we could just take their cells and cultivate them into all the beef we ever needed in the most efficient way possible? Wouldn't that be better? You might be skeeved out. Why? Tell us in the comments, please. Remember that nature study talking about chewing? When they replaced one third of our diet, we completely changed our face, we changed a whole bunch of our characteristics. I think what you could think of it as is that we didn't start eating all the meat, we started eating some meat. And this is the path to being more vegetarian if you're worried about the economy of the world and the resource use to grow meat. Sausage for breakfast, meatball subs for lunch, and steaks for dinner, that's not some meat. Of the three meals, you ate meat in three of them, right? Thinking about how you consume your food could change the whole world. The whole planet could be better, not just you. And that's okay. It's a whole other topic though. Thank you so much for hanging out with me on Seeker Plus. Just a reminder, you can find us over on YouTube at youtube.com Seeker for videos all about science. And you can find me on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and elsewhere. I'm at Trace Dominguez in most places. This episode was written by Trace Dominguez. That's me. It was fact-checked by Megan Bates. The associate producer was Victoria Barrios. It was edited by Matt Morales and Susan Mariana. It was recorded by Spencer Snyder and Matt Pignol. Our intern is Debbie Hanum. Our shoot producer is Brian Pendergast. And of course, we have to say thank you to our special guest from Thrillist, Thanks again for listening to Secret Plus. We are so glad to be back. We'll be releasing and rebroadcasting updated versions of our episodes here on this channel. So we will see you around. Stay tuned for the upcoming series next week. I'm excited. I hope you are too. I'm Trace. Thanks again.